Heavenly Father, we have gathered here as your image bearers, male and female, in order to worship you, because by your grace and your mercy, you revealed to us the depth of our sin. You showed us Christ as our Savior. And even though as we just had a chance to sing, our sins are many, but your mercy is so much more. I ask, Father, that you would be glorified this morning from this text, that you would help a sinful man like me faithfully preach it, and my brothers and sisters faithfully receive it. I pray, Lord, that we would, during this time, be rightly overwhelmed with your majesty, that as we contemplate your goodness and your grace, and your power and your holiness, we'd be overwhelmed rightly that you would not only communicate to us and show yourself to us, but that you would make us sons and daughters. We desire this time to be a time of worship and not religion. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move amongst us in a mighty way, stirring us maybe in ways we have not been stirred yet this week, this month, or maybe in our lives. Stir us to obedience, Father. Stir us to love. Stir us to the clarity of who you are and the gospel of grace that we might share this with others. I ask above all else, Father, that during this time, your name would be magnified as we consider your creation and specifically those made in your image and that you would cause us to be the image bearers that we are, male and female, that we might rightly love one another testify to this world of your goodness and bring you honor and glory. We ask that you would do this, Father, for Christ's name's sake. Amen. Hmm. Some Sundays the songs are a bit harder for me to get through. Same for you? Hmm. I was driving down this morning, um, and the sun was breaking through the clouds, and I thought, how is it that God wants to commune with us? How can he be so good and so merciful to want to commune with sinners like us? He creates all that is seen and unseen, and we, we revel in his creation, yet he is infinitely more glorious. And I pray that you're here to glorify and worship him. There's no other reason to be here than to give him honor and glory. Okay, Acts 16. Um, I hope that for those of you who received the email, that the title of the sermon caught your attention, Female Image Bears. Men, I'm glad you're here. You said, well, it's not for me. You are, if you're a man, you are not a female image bear, but this sermon is very much for you too. So I pray that you have ears to hear. Uh, going back to the 1920s, so well over a hundred years now, prominent voices in the Western world have claimed Christianity to be anti-woman, a patriarchal, oppressive faith that enslaves women to a patriarchal father God, overbearing husbands, and a life restricted to the home. Stephen Matson, in his book, The Great Awakening, sums up 
the feminist movement in this country well and their view of Christianity. Listen to this. He writes, American Christianity has been a horrible place for women. It ignores them, abuses them, assaults them, objectifies them, oppresses them, and then attempts to theologically rationalize it all as being biblical and holy. The church has been a willing co-conspirator in the widespread affliction of women. He claims Christ. He's a graduate of Moody. It is without question that at certain times and in certain places in church history, women have not been treated as the co-equal image bearers of God that they are. We will not deny that. The complementary roles that God has given us as males and females have at times been distorted inside the church, wrongly equating our value and our worth in the eyes of God to the positions that God has given us to hold. And when that has happened and women have suffered as a result inside the church, God has been most displeased. In our cultural moment, the same mistake is being made, attaching value and worth to position and power, your job, your degree, your bank account. So when the church comes along, for example, and it says that only men can hold the pastoral office because the Bible clearly teaches that. The culture and many confused Christians inside the church see that as patriarchal and oppressive, as unfair or unequal. And they see it like that because in their thinking, if women have equal value in the eyes of God, they should have equal positions in God's economy. They should have equal access in any role, in any position, inside and outside the church is the thinking of the popular culture and in the church too. In other words, God's given roles, male, female, husband, wife, father, mother, protector, nurturer, are all put on a value scale, listen closely, and worth is ascribed not to a male or female being created in the image of God and therefore infinitely worthy and infinitely valuable, but according to the role you take. So if the role of a husband as spiritual head is viewed as more valuable than the role of a wife as a spiritual helpmate, then the culture concludes that Christianity and the Bible must be anti-woman. The Bible does not teach that. The historical record does not reveal that, and a true church in Christ will not practice that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them how? Male and female, he created them. Both males and females created in the image of God, therefore eternally and infinitely valuable. Male and female, both image bearers and as image bearers of equal value and worth god has ascribed roles to each because we complement each other not usurp each other not roles listen that reveal worth but roles that reveal function in god's economy specific roles given that when we actually operate in our proper roles as god has prescribed there's harmony there's peace there's great joy in other words, the Bible paints a very different picture from Mr. Matson's description and even the loudest voices in the feminist community today. 
True Christianity, according to the word of God and rightly practiced, is not anti-woman, it's not oppressive, and it's not patriarchal. True biblical Christianity liberates females, listen, it liberates females from patriarchal cultures that do in fact oppress them. It liberates the female from the Genesis 3 curse of wanting to usurp the man. It liberates the female of attaching her worth and her value to position or role. Christianity frees us. It does not enslave. This morning as we follow Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke to Greece, we will see just how ludicrous these contemporary claims against the church and Christ are. And I pray we see instead the great love, listen, the great love that God the Father has for women, for those image bearers He made in His own image. I'd like to do that. Do I have your attention or not? I'd like to do that by looking at three things. One, Christianity is not inequitable. Christianity is not oppressive. Christianity is not anti-home. Christianity is not inequitable, it's not oppressive, and it's not anti-home. The theme of the sermon is this. The gospel sets women free to be the women God created them to be. The gospel sets women free to be the women that God created them to be, not the culture, not what the culture tells them they ought to be. All right? Christianity is not inequitable, even though that's what we've heard now for decades. The great mistake made, one of the great mistakes made, in the Western church when it comes to gender roles is the confusion of equality. What does it mean to be equal? If we are equal, therefore, do we have to have the same roles? The Bible clearly defines certain roles for males and females. And in the scriptures, we see males taking leadership roles. And therefore, the culture and many in the church have wrongly concluded that if you have roles that are not prescribed to a woman, she must be, therefore, less valuable. Less valuable to God and less valuable in the church. And so the cry has been that Christianity and the church is patriarchal. What does that word mean? A patriarchal structure is a male-dominated social structure where women are subjugated and treated as inferior to men. One professing Christian feminist author put it like this. She writes, Patriarchy is exactly the right word to explain the continued existence of pervasive inequality in the church. She said it's the exact right word. The problem is it doesn't match the biblical record. And it does not match where the church has truly been exercised for 2,000 years in countries where women have in fact been liberated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the passage with me again. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and you notice who's on board now? Luke shows up in Troas and suddenly he's part of the group. They made away direct, a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So if you remember, our friends are making their way west across Turkey. They, they tried to go south into Asia, and, and the Holy Spirit said no. Then they tried to make their way north into Bithynia, into the Black Sea, and, and the Spirit of Christ said no, and they end up in Troas. And, and we left off last week, and they're in Troas, and very likely Paul being the missionary who loves the lost, is going to set up camp there and he gets a vision. And the vision is, of course, the man from Macedonia who persistently says, come here and what? Help us. 
help us. And so we're told that, that Paul and the others, they immediately set sail for Samothrace. That's an island in the Aegean Sea. And once they make it to Samothrace, very short distance, they land in Neapolis. And Neapolis was the major port for the city of Philippi. And you, know, you all know the city of Philippi because you know the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, the church, the Philippians, right? Okay. Luke tells us it's a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. That's really important. So Philippi was a city that was rich in copper and gold. And so it was a place that for centuries they had battled to have. Philip of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great, captured the city in um, the 4th century B.C. But in 31 B.C., about 80 years before Paul arrives on scene, the emperor Octavian took control of it, and he made it a Roman colony. And when a city received Roman status, that means it was like living in Rome. And they had all the privileges of a city like Rome. It was filled with ex-Roman centurions and populated mostly by Roman citizens. And so it was a new type of city that the gospel was making its way here in Europe. And we're told, look at verse 12, the latter part of verse 12, that they arrive and they remained in this city some days. They're getting their bearing. Now I want you to pay very close attention to what our supposedly chauvinistic anti-women missionaries do next. Look at verse 13. On the Sabbath day, Luke writes, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. So there evidently is no synagogue in Philippi, or they would have gone there first. That was the standard operating procedure for their, their missionary logistics. So instead they get word that there's a prayer gathering at a river. Probably, it's probably the Gangites River, which was about a mile outside the city gates of Philippi. They, they get a, a word that there's a prayer gathering there. And so what do they do? We're told they, they go and they sit down there and they speak with whom? The leading men of the civil magistrate of Philippi? The leading businessmen and those engaged in trade? They sat down with the leading men in philosophy and religion. No. That's what a religion that does not see women as being equal in value to men would have done. We're told in verse 13, they sat down and they spoke to the women who had come together. Now, it has often been commented, rightfully so, Paul receives a vision from what? The man of Macedonia. He arrives in Macedonia, and who's he ministering to? Women. That's not a mistake. The men and the women in the eyes of God have equal value and worth. Not role. Image bears. Preaching and teaching to the women of Macedonia. Why would, why would Luke highlight this? Remember, we're talking 30 years from the ascension of Christ to the imprisonment. Why would, why would Luke highlight this? He wants us to see clearly. The gospel cuts through the cultural nonsense of our centuries-long gender wars. Cuts through it entirely. Of males being superior to females, or today hearing that females are superior to males. It cuts past gender because it wants to address, the gospel wants to address the real issue at hand. It's not are you a male or a female, what's your role? It's you are a sinner in need of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. 
the problem of sin we have together, image bearers of God, male and female. It's the problem of sin that has separated us from God and ruined our images so that we don't know how to live as a biblical woman or a biblical man. And so it does not matter to Paul at all if he's talking to a group of women, a group of men, or a mixed group. He is a fisher of men and women as we are to be today. What he's interested is an audience that will hear the gospel of grace, know they are sinners in need of salvation, repent, believe, and follow Jesus. That's what's on the missionary's mind. Because, my beloved, when you, when you leave this place and you stand before the judgment seat of God, your gender is going to have no bearing on your salvation. Do you know that? It's amazing when I, I think about the amount of dialogue and the amount of argumentation and how much is written on male and female and all about. When you come before Jesus, your gender will be insignificant. What will matter when you stand before the living God is whether or not you know Jesus Christ, his son, period. Our missionaries do not pursue the leading men of the city as a patriarchal religion would. Instead, they sit down and they teach these women the gospel because, one, these women are eternally significant and valuable in the image of God. They're valuable to God because they're image bearers. And number two, they're sinners in need of salvation by grace. Simple. Throughout the New Testament, we do not find a gospel that is anti-woman. Just the opposite. You read through the gospels and you'll see the degree to which women permeate the story. Why? Because God is here to save sinners. And women, you are sinners. Men, you are sinners. We find in the New Testament women, many, who are followers of Jesus. In fact, I would argue many of them more faithful followers than the men. They financially supported Jesus. They're equal members in Jesus' church. They're equal citizens in the kingdom of God. They are daughters of God the Father, co-heirs with Christ. There's no class system. There's no caste system in the kingdom of God. Oh, that's worth at least one amen, is there not? I, I think so. The Apostle Paul made this crystal clear in Galatians chapter 3 that the, the roles that we have are distinct and they're given by God and they're glorious and they're beautiful when we live in accordance with them. And at the same time, we have equal value and worth, male and female, as image bearers of God. That means, my beloved, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company is equally valuable and worthy to God as an image bearer as the mother who stays home and takes care of her five children. The role does not define the value. Though if we can get that, then we can, we can leave here to, with great clarity on the Word of God. Galatians chapter 3, when speaking of being saved by grace and justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or bloodline, or social standing. You heard it read already. Listen closely. Galatians 3.28. Paul said, There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Your bloodline doesn't matter. Neither slave nor free. Your status in society does not matter. Nor is there male and female. Your gender does not matter. Why? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In God's kingdom, those who are saved by grace and brought inside the kingdom, those distinctions are outweighed infinitely by the grace of God. Now, this is how God the Father sees women, and this is how Jesus loves women, and this is how the apostles ministered to women. Now, brothers, listen. 
if there is even the slightest hint of patriarchal chauvinism in your heart, if you think that you are, because you're a male, or because you've had greater success in this world, that you are more valuable than a female, then I'm calling you today to confess that sin before a holy God who hates such thoughts. We are to confess those sins to God and repent immediately of them. We are to love the women in our lives. We're to honor our mothers and honor our wives and our daughters and our sisters in Christ. Your female co-worker, the stranger on the street, they are glorious, God-given image bearers. Glorious. Sisters, if you have equated your role with your worth and you have somehow thought that if, if I could be a man, I would be more worthy in the eyes of God, if you have used that to exercise a Genesis 3 curse and tried to usurp the male authority figures in your life, or maybe, and I pray not the case, you have actually swallowed the lie of the feminist movement and you actually do believe that females are superior to males, then you need to confess your sins to God as well and realize that godly men are a great blessing, right? We are to complement one another. And together, males and females, living in accordance with God's will as image bearers, what great work we can do together as we complement one another, not trying to usurp one another. Amen? All right, so I hope that's clear. Christianity is not inequitable when it comes to the value and worth of males and females. Distinct roles do not mean different value. Okay? Number two, I hope you're still with me, Christianity is not oppressive. Not oppressive. For decades, the popular culture has told us that religion is oppressive, that religion oppresses females. And it oppresses females, the culture argues, because religion presents inequality in the context of of a faith. Certainly some religious systems do. Islam, for example, has catastrophic results in the well-being of women not being seen as co-equal to men. But again, the history of the church and the history of Christianity paints a very different picture. Alvin Schmidt, listen to this, Alvin Schmidt in his book, How Christianity Changed the World, he writes this, He said, what would be the status of women in the Western world today had Jesus Christ never entered the human arena? What would be their status? He said, one way to answer this question is to look at the status of women in most present-day Islamic countries. Here, he writes, women are still denied many basic human rights that are available to men. And in countries where the Islamic religion is is adhered to strongly, a man has the right to beat and sexually desert his wife, all with the full support of the Quran. How different from Ephesians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul writes to the men in Ephesus, and he says this to the men, what? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The most extreme sacrificial display of love mankind has ever seen, that's Christ dying for his bride. Paul says, men, that's how you're supposed to love your wives. The exact opposite. I would say, men, that's how we are to love the women in our lives. Sacrificial, other-centered love. It's this radical love of God for women that is evidenced here in our missionaries' encounter with Lydia 
Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they've begun their great missionary work in Europe at a riverside talking to a gathering of women. Look at verse 14. Luke says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So there are several women gathered there. Likely some were Jews. Maybe some were proselytes. She's identified as a, a worshiper of God. The title would have been a god fear. That's a Gentile who had not converted to Judaism but was worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Lydia's hometown, Thyatira, had a large Jewish population. So it's likely that when she was younger, she came to hear about this God of the Bible, and she actually started worshiping him in Thyatira. Now Luke tells us that she's a seller of purple goods. You say, what, what is that? What is the selling of purple goods? She's a Gentile businesswoman from Thyatira in Philippi. Now, Philippi, the reason that, one of the reasons that Paul, Luke wants us to know it's a Roman colony is that there would have been a high demand for purple, a high demand for purple goods. Purple was the color of royalty, and it was a color of status. And so togas and tunics and rugs and tapestries, they had lots of purple trim around them to identify that we're significant, we're important. As the color of royalty, it was used by the emperors, by the governors, and by their royal courts. And this, the, the, the city of Thyatira actually had waters that were specifically home to a particular, you'll love this, a, a, a sea snail that produced this purple dye. And so it was actually a natural resource from, from Lydia's hometown. And the process to get this dye out was <laughs> squeezing this little fellow our, our friendly little mollusk, drop by drop. Now, the easy way to get it out was to crush it, but then the dye was not as brilliant. But if you got it drop by drop, the dye that came out of the waters of Thyatira was some of the most brilliant in the world. And so she's a, she's a seller of this. She's a seller of purple goods. She has her business in Philippi. She has a household in Philippi, which probably included, what well, we know it, property, um, family, servants, maybe slaves. In other words, she was doing very well in the purple goods business. Now, I want you to notice, this is extraordinary, and I, I want you to hear this with all the weight that I think Luke is trying to give to us. The first person that God the Father decides to save on the European continent is a Gentile female entrepreneur. Verse 14, latter part, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the efficacious call that we just had a chance to read, enabled Lydia to see God clearly, to see his absolute holiness, to see the depth of her sin and the need for salvation. The Holy Spirit made her alive so that she could see that she was trying to worship God. She was not a Jew. She was not a Christian. She had no access to God. God gave her access by sovereign decree through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, my beloved, the first Christian convert on European soil, and if you know your church history at all, the place where Christianity would change the course of Western civilization and the entire world was a successful Gentile businesswoman. So much for the God of the Bible being anti-woman. That's going to fall hard in this passage and many others. Now, most believe that Lydia was a widow with grown children. There's no mention of her husband or little ones. 
Um, but she is not, so I want to clarify this. She's not portraying the mythical 21st century woman who is told from an early age, you can get your Ph.D., work a 60-hour week in the office, be a faithful wife, faithful mother, faithful homemaker, faithful church member, faithful neighbor, all at the same time. That's not what this is teaching. But it is portraying a Proverbs 31 woman, is it not? Verse 16, Proverbs 31. This woman considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. Verse 27, Proverbs 31. All the while watching over the affairs of her household. In other words, God chooses to save a woman who does not fit the 21st feminist perception of the Christian woman. It doesn't fit. Lydia does not fit this woman, this objectified, oppressed woman chained to the home. In fact, when Lydia comes to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, Paul does not tell her, sell your business, remarry immediately, and now go submit to your husband. That's what an oppressive religion would do, would it not? It does not do that. My beloved, listen, biblical Christianity has always been a faith that does not enslave but sets people free, male and female. Sets us free. Free to what? Free to be the men and women that God created us to be. Not women trying to be men and men trying to be women. That's always bad. That's why when we see it, we, there should be a right, oh, this doesn't fit. It doesn't fit because that's not how we're created. When are you most free, my beloved? You're most free when you're living as God created you to live. That's when you're most free. If you're a woman and you live as God created you to live according in accordance with the word of God, then you will experience true freedom in Christ. If you're a man, we'll be the same. If you're a sea snail that produces brilliant purple, you don't want to try to be something else than that sea snail. It's a simple concept, and yet, we struggle with it so much today, maybe, maybe more so in our cultural moment than we have in the history of this country. We just can't get this male-female thing right. And, and it makes sense, my love. If we reject God, then how are we supposed to know? We're made in his image. How are we supposed to know? By being forgiven of her sins and by putting her faith in a crucified, risen Savior, Lydia was able to walk for the first time in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's so extraordinary. She now knows, she now knows that she is eternally and infinitely loved by God the Father through her faith in Jesus Christ. She knows that, and now she's empowered by love. And so she doesn't have to try to be the number one purple saleswoman in Greece. Not necessary for her. Out of the storehouse of love that God now has poured out in her, she now can walk in freedom. She no longer needs to engage, and I'm sure they were there. The Romanistic culture was very patriarchal. She no longer needs to engage in, this, in these gender wars of trying to ascend the male or the female. No, she could be the image-bearing female God created her to be using all the gifts and talents God gave her. Not to usurp but to fulfill her role in God's kingdom, whatever that role was for her, whatever it was for her. And this is what Christianity truly does. It enables us, listen, this is for all of us. It enables us to stop trying to earn our value and our worth. It enables us to stop trying to attach our position or our power or our role with who we are in Christ. Being forgiven of our sins and set free in Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit through faith, every single believer, male or female, now becomes what? 
a son or daughter of God the Father, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. What else do you want? What else do you want? That is sufficient. I would say it's infinitely more grand than anything you could possibly imagine here on earth. And that means, my beloved, that we don't have to buy into the gender wars of this world. We don't have to buy into it. You don't have to get sucked into it. We can live as the eternally valuable image bearers that God created us to be, joyfully, purposefully, living according to the roles God assigns. Now listen, not to be valued, but because you're already valued in Jesus. You can live out the role that God gave you as a man, as a woman, not to be valued, but because you are valued eternally in Christ. And that means, I'll speak to my sisters, you can rest. Listen, sisters, this is a hard place for you. This culture is a hard place for you. You can, in Christ, rest in his finished work and your new standing. You're a daughter of a king. You're a daughter of a king. You don't have to prove yourself by taking that job outside the home because the culture and your parents tell you you should. You don't have to justify your college degree The number of times I've heard this, well, you went to school, you got the degree, therefore go get a job. What? Is it not right for women to be educated and if they don't want to go get a job but stay at home and raise their children? Is that not good? Of course it's good. You don't have to attach your value or worth to anything other than your standing in Jesus Christ. Not your marriage, not your degrees, not the behavior of your children or the orderliness of your home. Your value and worth is in Christ alone. And you don't, listen, you do not want to attach your value to the success or perceived success of other Christian women. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but there's something very strange happening in our church, not our church, but the church in the Western world, where women are putting out these podcasts and they, they seem like these superstar women. And then other women, Christian, Christian women are watching this and you take a Christian female podcast and you couple that with HGTV and Pinterest and you got a mess on your hands because suddenly the woman is saying, that's who I have to be to be valuable in the eyes of God. That's a lie. If you view these other women as being more successful and therefore more valuable than you, then you are comparing yourself and as if you're falling short. Remember, your value is not attached to your role. Your value is not attached to how successful you are as a mother or as a wife or as a homemaker or as a businesswoman. Your value is attached to Jesus Christ. You don't have to listen to the lies of the culture that say your role as a wife or mother or homemaker is oppressive. You don't have to listen to that lie, right? You're free of it. You don't have to listen to all the supposed Christian influencers that make you feel like you're not measuring up as a Christian woman. You're free of that. The gospel of Jesus Christ sets you free from all that noise inside the church, outside the church, so you can what? You can be the glorious, beautiful, at-rest image bearer that God made you to be. Now listen, made you to be, not females in general, but you, female image bearer of Jesus Christ. A contemporary Christian author, Susan Bowen, was right when she said this, listen, Christianity is the best thing that ever happened to women. 
Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. Christianity is the best thing that ever happened to women because it enables women to what? To live as they were created to live in the image of God. 100%. All right. Number one, Christianity is not inequitable. Number two, Christianity is not oppressive. Last one, stay with me. Christianity is not anti-home. You say, that's weird. Where did that come from? Anti-home. I don't see that anywhere in here. Lydia hears the gospel. She repents. She believes. Verse 15, she was baptized and her household as well. Now, I talked about this briefly with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 with the baptisms of the households. We're going to talk about it a little bit more in a couple weeks, maybe maybe next week, with the Philippian jailer and his baptism in the household. If you were here on Wednesday night, we, uh, many of our, presbyt- our uh, Presbyterian, Pado-Baptist brothers believe that this is a great example of infant baptism. They say it's a household. Certainly there were infants and small children in the household. They were all baptized, therefore, we must baptize infants too. The, the problem with that is it runs contrary to the entire New Testament teaching. Post-Pentecost, every single baptism in the New Testament was attached explicitly or implicitly, implicitly to the preaching of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, faith in God, repentance, confession, and the Holy Spirit, all at the same time. So these household dialogues, and we'll look a little bit more, um, don't bear out an infant or, or child non-believing baptism. In fact, there's not a single example where Paul or anyone else in the New Testament baptizes an infant, a child, or adult that does not make a profession of faith. doesn't exist. That's not why Luke's writing this. That's just to help us not be confused by it. What Luke wants us to see here is Lydia's heart. Did you get that? Lydia's heart is changed after she comes to a saving grace. And it's specifically changed in her desire to be hospitable. Look at, look at verse 15. Luke writes, she, speaking of Lydia, urged us, so Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, it's a, it's a good contingency and probably people with them. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. She was persuasive. They were being kind. Of, so we, don't want to, we don't want to impose. We don't want to put you out. And she kept saying, no, you got to stay. You got to stay. Lydia's desire to serve God's missionaries by opening up her home to them, becomes a litmus test. This is fascinating for the authenticity of her faith. Did you notice that? If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house. She's essentially saying this, come and see for yourself whether or not Jesus now rules in my heart and in my life. Come, stay in my home. Let me serve you and minister to you as what? As Christ has served and ministered to me. She wants to reciprocate the love that she has received from Christ through these missionaries. So this is, this is not a picture of an oppressed female coming under the subjugation of these male missionaries, is it? doesn't seem like it. This is a picture of hospitality, pure hospitality out of a love for Jesus. This is what Lydia is expressing. My beloved, Christian hospitality was one of the outstanding virtues in the early church. Fellow believers, they opened up their homes to, to pastors and, and teachers and evangelists and missionaries and those who were fleeing persecution. And, and Lydia proves to be an, an outstanding example in the Philippian church, so much so that the commentator said that she could probably be credited with this generosity that we see in the church in Philippi. Paul would later write in Philippians 4, 
He says, when I left Macedonia, speaking of this time, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, Philippi. In other words, she's setting a standard here of radical generosity and hospitality for her brothers in Christ. Again, the contrast with our cultural moment, I don't think could be more stark. Even though Lydia was a businesswoman, she understood the value of what? Of homemaking. Successful businesswoman did not forsake the value of homemaking. She understood that cultivating a place in the home is glorifying to God. A place where we can serve others. Certainly our families, of course, but also church family, friends, neighbors, the unsaved. With a great push to get the Western woman out of the home and into the workplace in order to validate her equality with men, most homes today, Christian or otherwise, no longer provide this fundamental expression of love and service toward others. They don't. Instead of our homes being great gathering places where the gospel's lived out and people around us saved and unsaved can see that, the culture has told women that their value is not in homemaking but in the marketplace. The result of that messaging for 50 years Biblical hospitality as a practical expression of our love for Christ has all but disappeared in the Western church. But forsaking our homes and hospitality is not an option for the Christian. It's not an option. Why did Lydia believe her hospitality would testify to Paul and the others that she was a true believer? Why? How would it testify that she really, really did know Jesus? Because Jesus said this, Matthew 25, verse 40, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, what? You finish it. You do for me. Christ saying you love your brothers and sisters, showing hospitality, bringing them in, giving them a bed, giving them warm food, making them feel loved. Jesus says you do that for one of the least of these of mine. You're doing it for me. Lydia got that. She probably didn't even hear this teaching yet, but her heart had been transformed, and she wanted to do it out of her love for God. By opening up her home to Paul and the other servants, she was revealing her love for them and her love for Jesus, her love for Jesus most. She did not say, I'm a successful businesswoman. Go get a place for yourself. She did not say, I have no time for you, I'm running this business. Nor did she say, I'm a first century feminist and I will not serve you men. You may come, but you will serve me. She didn't say that. No, my beloved, her heart had been so radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that she deeply desired to serve these men who were once strangers who are now brothers. She desires that. In other words, as she opened her homes and as we open our homes, and bring the saved and unsaved inside. We get to show them what a love for Christ looks like. Right? It's one thing to bring a friend or a, a neighbor to the church. Say, you know, let's come to the church service and listen to us sing and listen to us pray and, and hear us preach. But how much when you say, come into my house and let me feed you a meal and let me get to know you. Let me hear about your struggles and see how I can help you, how I can serve you powerful testimony to the love of Christ inside our homes. The apostle Peter would later issue it as a command, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, showing what? Hospitality to one another without grumbling. You say, why would, why would he have to put it grumbling? Because hospitality is hard. People in your home's hard. 
It means you can't be in your pajamas. Well, I guess you can. You can. Just make sure they're appropriate pajamas. But to do hospitality well, it, it means you're going to be serving. It means you're going to be extending for others. Um, my beloved, in a world that is becoming more isolated with each passing year, I do believe it's time for the Christian church to rediscover this teaching, this simple teaching of hospitality. It's time for us to stop diminishing the power of our homes to reveal Christ and God's love for us and instead open our doors to each other, to other Christians, to our neighbors who do not know the Lord. And some of you are doing that, and some of the stories are very powerful about how God is working through your hospitality. My beloved, without knowing God the Father through Jesus Christ, none of us, male or female, can know our value as image bearers or the distinct roles God has given us to live for his glory. We cannot know this. What a great opportunity for us to bring a picture of a biblical woman to the 21st century woman who does not see it. How glorious to show them by doing what? By doing exactly what Paul did. By sharing the gospel of grace, listen, with the females in your life. Sometimes they are, even in the Western world, sometimes the females are diminished in the gospel giving because implicitly we think that it's more important for the male to hear it. Sharing the gospel with women Like Paul, we want to show them how Christ gave his life on the cross to set women free. I'm not excluding you men, but I I want us to know that Christ died for women too. He died to set women free from oppressive, real oppressive patriarchies because our Father in heaven is not like that. He died to set women free from the curse of Genesis thir- chapter 3 of desiring. You know, you know what I'm talking about, ladies, that desire to usurp your husband or usurp your father or usurp your body. You don't even know why. It's there. It's part of the curse. Christ set you free from that. So you don't have to play that game anymore. Christ died to set you free from trying to find your worth and value in a role or position or power. It's a deadly game. It ends in destruction. My beloved, it was Christ, the man, who ascended the cross to reveal God's great love for women, giving his own life in their place so they could not only see but experience what it means to be a daughter of God the Father, a co-heir with Christ. It was Christ, the Son of God, who, although being truly God, did what? He gave up his equality with God as though something not to be grasped. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross so that women could see they are eternally valuable in the eyes of God and equal to man. Fully God, truly God, and yet not something he was willing to grasp that women might know. Your image bears. You're eternally valuable. My beloved, it was Christ It was Christ who experienced the most severe oppression of sinful man and even the Father's wrath. He willingly was cast out of the Father's house, out of God's presence, 
experiencing in his body on the cross the full equivalency of our eternal damnation so he could become what? The ultimate host to all who repent of their sins and put their faith in him. He was cast out so you males and females could be brought in and experience true eternal hospitality in the house of God forever and ever. That's how much Jesus Christ loves you. Far from oppressive, far from patriarchal, Susan Bolin was right. Christianity is the best thing that ever happened to women, and I would say Christianity is the best thing that ever happened to men. Christianity is the best thing that's ever happened to mankind. Amen? Let's not be afraid to share that. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you give us clarity. You give us clarity in our knowing you through Jesus Christ so that we can see that as image bearers, we truly are eternally significant to you. And by grace through faith, coming into the kingdom through Jesus, we can recognize that we are sons and daughters in your kingdom. Father, I pray that you would give us as a church clarity on the complementary roles that you've given us that we would see the beauty and the harmony that comes from males and females working together for your glory, not fighting for power, not striving for position, but wanting above all else, working together that you might be glorified and honored. And what a message for the world today. When all we do is fight, I ask, Lord, that you would bless Cambrian Park Baptist Church with this knowledge that we might share it with others, that we might go to those in our mission field and and reveal Christ as the one who sets us free, free to be the men and women that you created us to be, not bound by the sin. Father, do that in this church, do that in our mission fields, with our family, with our friends, the coworkers, all those, Lord, that you've put in um, our lives that we might share this truth with. I pray we would, that they might be set free too. In Jesus' name, amen.